Welcome to Body Matters Podcast, where we bring to you raw and inspiring content on all things to do with body positivity and eating disorder recovery. But before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as traditional people and traditional owners of this country. We acknowledge with gratitude First Nations communities for their continuing care and connection to the lands or waters with which they have protected for thousands of years. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and recognise that First Nations sovereignty was never ceded. On this week's episode, I'm super excited to be introducing you to our next special guest to welcome the new year, eating disorder group therapist at Hollywood Private Hospital in Perth, Tess Allen. Tess is studying her postgraduate psychology degree at the Can Miller Institute, where she has also had experience working at Headspace for a number of years, working in the space of mental health, eating disorders, group therapy, family therapy, and more. So please enjoy our lovely guest, Tess. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Tess. Thanks, Jessie. It's lovely to be here. Would you be able to provide a little background information about yourself and maybe speak about some things that you like to do to stay well? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, my name's Tess. I'm originally from the kind of very bottom of the south coast of Western Australia and have relocated to Perth, where I'm currently working um, at the Ramsey Clinic at Hollywood Private Hospital as the inpatient and outpatient eating disorder therapist. So what I do to stay well, I definitely kind of check in with myself as much as possible throughout, you know, a lot of work, a lot of study. Um, The main things I do to stay well, spending time with family and friends, um, spending a lot of time with my golden retriever, uh, taking him for a walk, um, a lot of healthy movement, but also a lot of video games as well. So a nice balance between the both of those. I love that, like unique interests. Yeah, yeah, very varied, which I think is good. (laughs) Yes. So each week on the podcast, we do like to ask our guests about a recent challenge that they've experienced and how they have managed to overcome it. Do you have one? Yeah, so I guess currently I am working full-time and studying full-time, which um, is always a bit of a challenge. So I think um, I've definitely come close to burnout a few times in my um, academic career. Um, So a huge emphasis on like a strong work-life balance. Um, And I think the biggest thing I learned to sort of stay well with that um that that challenge and how to overcome it is just setting boundaries with myself you know being really honest about what I can take on where things are at for me and also um what I'm not really willing to kind of compromise on um so that's been very helpful yes that is a major challenge what do you kind of do I guess when you feel like you are burning out what's like your go-to I have a pretty good self-care routine and I think that definitely includes the classic things like, you know, a face mask and a candle, but also things like, you know, cleaning my space, um, making sure I'm spending enough time with loved ones, family and friends, um, but also enough time alone to sort of recuperate and re-energize. 
Um, I think just kind of checking all of those domains in my life and just where the balance is, um, that has been tricky at times, but definitely helps overall. Yes, I definitely find the self-care, including more self-care, is that kind of key to preventing the burnout and yet kind of getting through it. Very much so, yeah. So I guess to talk a little bit about your experiences, so what are some of the reasons as to why someone might need inpatient or outpatient treatment for an eating disorder? Yeah, so I guess there is a huge variety of reasons. Um, Some people may have the sort of misconception that it's only when they become really medically unstable, which can be one of the things. Um, But where I work is a mental health ward, so we don't actually do the medical side of the treatment as much. Um, So I guess one of the things I see quite often is that early intervention. So the prevention step of maybe the eating disorder has been identified and they don't really want it to go down that path of getting worse. Maybe it's really hard in the area that they live in to get that community treatment as soon as possible. Therefore, sort of that kickstart of the recovery by coming into a program where the refeeding can happen quite quickly compared to if they did it in a community setting. Um, That is one of the biggest reasons why I see people come in. Um, Other times it is sort of that return to treatment that maybe they have been an inpatient setting in the past and they've left and maybe a big life thing sort of happened um, and the eating disorder sort of crept back in a little bit. So it's that sort of readmission in the earlier stages compared to maybe the first or second admission they had just to get back on top of things as soon as possible. Um, So they're kind of the two main reasons, whether it's that early intervention or maybe is that kind of readmission um, in the earlier stages of the eating disorder. Um, Where I work, we are classified as a refeeding program. So even though we are a mental health ward, that is sort of the main um, goal of our program and the inpatient side of things. Um, our day program is a little bit different so we spend quite a bit of time just looking at that structure and that adequacy you know how do we get that back in place and then you can go back to that community treatment team and hopefully you've got the basis of a really good recovery pathway. Yeah that is really interesting that inpatient and outpatient you don't have to be medically unwell. Yeah yep for the medical wards definitely but for ours um No. So we take people over their health, you know, healthy, safe, minimum weight. Um, But if they do come in below that, that's where we will sort of get them to. Um, And I think that helps. We are a completely voluntary program. So we don't see anybody who is there um, against their own volition, which um, I think makes the therapy side of things a lot easier um, because people are willing to be there. They're willing to engage. They're really wanting that support and that recovery. Wow. How do people, I guess, then find the inpatient or outpatient? So I think um, often it will be on the recommendation of like a person from their community team. So whether it is their GP, whether it's their psychologist, their dietitian, um, I'm sure similar to over east where you are, that often you get that network of people, you know, who's doing what, you know, what programs you can refer out to um so we're really lucky to have a really fantastic network over here of professionals that sort of put our program up as one of those first options when somebody does need that higher level treatment 
But we also do have just parents, um, loved ones, family members, just kind of Googling inpatient eating disorder service or any kind of treatment service that isn't just a psychologist, dietitian, GP. Um, so we get them from all over the place, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I just love that it's voluntary. It seems like, yeah, it's such a different type of setup. Yeah. Yeah. I think, unfortunately, with the usual medical admissions or the usual admissions to hospital, they aren't very voluntary for a lot of the patients that do come in um so yeah I'm very blessed to be working in sort of a unique opportunity where we do get people on their own volition yes so then I guess what are the different types of eating disorders that I guess do present um at hospital yeah so our we get a number of different presentations across our programs um Obviously, kind of anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa are the two big ones we see in our inpatient program um, alongside sort of offset as well as being a big one that's been coming through. Um, but recently, I've kind of noticed that we've had a bit of an uprise in um, the amount of patients with ARFID that have been coming into our inpatient program. It's not... Um, I guess the typical presentation, it's not the typical treatment for somebody with that diagnosis. Um, so we do have to kind of tweak the way our program works a little bit for people that do present with that diagnosis. But they're sort of the main um, for our inpatient. Um, in our day program, we see pretty much everybody that we can who does get referred. Um, but we do know that kind of binge eating disorder is not appropriate um, for an inpatient setting. So we do um, see them in our day program quite often. Wow, there's so many different types of eating disorders that do present. And that, yeah. yeah, what's it like, I guess, with everyone kind of crossing over? It's tricky. Um, but I think sometimes it can actually be really helpful. So often if we do have um, people maybe with a diagnosis of, um, anorexia nervosa or atypical anorexia and then we have a mix of people with ARFID at the same time in the group setting that we run the program in um, it's a really nice balance of support I think so often we'll have one side of them kind of supporting others when things get a little bit tricky whether it's around just like the social aspects of the group and the group dynamics whereas maybe some others kind of support them through some of the trickier meals that they might not actually struggle with so um, I think it can actually be quite helpful, quite cohesive. Yeah, definitely, actually, because some people might have progressed in different areas than others and are able to kind of, yeah, pull people out of spaces that they may not be able to pull themselves out of. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm. So then how do the different eating disorders then, I guess, impact therapy used within treatment? Yeah, good question. Um, I guess the treatment manuals and everything that we have for an inpatient setting is the classic kind of CBTE, um, which works. It's fantastic. Um, but often it is tailored directly towards people with any kind of restrict binge sort of presentation. Um, but if we do have patients that have come in with a diagnosis of ARF that it doesn't really fit. Um, so I do find myself... Um, kind of changing the way I do my therapy and adapting it as much as possible. Um, I'm really lucky that I can be as flexible as I need to be within our group program. Um, so for instance, on one of the days of the week, we do have what we call a social meal, which is often a meal that you'll find you'll be eating in a social situation, whether it's like pizza or chips or nachos. 
Um, and often that might be a little bit of a fear food for some of the patients. Um, so I do find maybe the people that have been diagnosed with ARFID that come in don't struggle as much with the food itself, but do have a tricky time with that social aspect of the meal itself. Um, and even in the reflection stage after that meal, I do find myself tailoring the questions a little bit differently towards those patients. So moving away from the standard reflection questions um, to see if they can reflect on other parts of the meal. So for instance, how was the social side of stuff? Are you, were you able to make conversations with other members of the group? Um, was it tricky sitting in a space where people, you know, might have high levels of distress over the meal? Um, so I think that has been tricky in itself for me um, but I try my best to kind of make it as comfortable as possible and not sort of um, implement therapies that aren't really going to be as effective as they could be for some of our patients. Uh, definitely it would be quite tricky catering to that social setting in the room so I guess with that group setting what are some of the main themes that you do see clients struggling with when it comes to treatment? Yeah, I think number one, definitely the group dynamic. Um, we see anyone, you know, from 16 years or older. So sometimes we do have a bit of a dynamic where maybe we have quite a lot of a younger cohort and one or two of sort of an older cohort, um, which I think can be tough, you know, spending 24-7 with the same group of people. Um, sometimes it, you know, patients do reflect that it can feel a little bit like high school again, you know, you're all on camp. Um, so I think the actual dynamics of the group is probably one of the main themes that people struggle with that is a bit unexpected. I don't think people really recognise that that's something they will come up against. Um on their own sort of individual treatment side of things, I think one of the biggest things I see clients and patients struggle with when it comes to the treatment is sort of around a loss of a voice. Um, our, well, any inpatient kind of hospital setting for eating disorder treatment is very quite strict. It has quite a lot of rules, a lot of boundaries, um, because we have to keep the patients safe. We have to keep them safe from um, the eating disorder itself and it's a really um, supportive environment to do so. But often I think patients do find that they may lose a sense of control or lose a sense of their own voice within that. Um, a huge part of the role that I play within the treating team is to ensure that although there are non-negotiables about the programs, that the patients do have the ability to make decisions about how those non-negotiables happen. Um, I guess, yeah, eating disorders take so much away from people's individual voices and their lives that it's so integral to me to ensure that they don't have their voice taken from them during treatment as well. Um, and I think it helps that it is a voluntary program so they do have the ability to decide this isn't right for me anymore. Um, so I think that's, it's a positive overall. Yes, I really like the choice element that people are kind of given and that's kind of like a main approach in there. But yeah. What's with the food aspect? Is it like hospital food? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good question. It's something that we get asked quite often by family members and friends. Um we are very, very lucky that we have an incredible kitchen at our hospital with some amazing cafeteria staff. I cannot um, give them any better reviews than if I tried. Um, 
Yeah, the food's actually really incredible at the hospital. I know that sounds a little bit silly, but we do quite a lot of supported meals with the patients. Um, and I'm always delighted to sit down and have some of the food there. So we are very blessed, very lucky to have that. Yes, that actually is really good. <laughs> so I guess in your experience with treatment, what are some of the key things that people have found helpful in recovery? I think the biggest ones, and it's something that I feel like I talk about this day in, day out, but that self-compassion and those boundaries, um, the most important things that I can kind of educate people on, um, provide groups, provide psychoeducation on. Um, I think, as we know, that eating disorders are still quite misunderstood by the majority of society these days. Um, and I think loved ones, family, friends can be doing their best to be supportive and to be helpful. But I often think that sometimes they may say things or do things that kind of do the opposite. They haven't been super helpful, super supportive. So I spend a lot of time working with the patients to communicate quite assertively towards others in their lives, um, but also towards the eating disorder itself, you know, um, set the boundaries around here is what I need from you and here is what I don't need from you. Um, I also think that self-compassion plays a huge role into setting boundaries that self-compassion is sort of known for being, you know, kind, being gentle to yourself, which it definitely is. But I also think it is setting boundaries with yourself, um, calling yourself out when things haven't gone the way that maybe they should have and being able to get yourself back on that right path. Um, I've definitely found that out of all of the groups I run, all of the therapy that I do, those are the sort of groups where I get the best feedback of being able to implement them into just kind of regular reality. Wow, that is so interesting that the boundaries people have with others can be some of the most helpful things in their recovery. Yeah, very much so. Um, and I think it's something that isn't really taught growing up. It isn't really taught throughout your life. So learning about what your values are, where your boundaries are in sort of place of those values and how to communicate them to others is so integral. It helps patients um, not lose their voice in treatment or outside of treatment, but also provides a really good safety net for if that eating disorder does kind of rear its head again in the future. Yeah, you're definitely right. I think if people step over your boundaries, um, you can feel quite bad about yourself and that's yeah going to be a part of maintaining um, the eating disorder. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I think just around, you know, unhelpful situations, people commenting on maybe the way their body has changed or the foods that they're eating compared to in the past, um, being able to sort of speak up and say, hey, saying things like that isn't really helpful for my recovery right now holds so much power um, for patients, which I really appreciate. Yes, not being able to stick up for yourself or meet your own needs. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So then I guess what are some of the biggest breakthroughs that you have seen for people in treatment? I think it's always so incredible to see somebody kind of tackle a fear food um, or even like rediscover love for a particular childhood food um you know seeing patients who haven't eaten a cheeseburger in many many years or an ice cream um and for them to not only be able to eat that food again you know get through it but actually connect it to kind of this nostalgic childhood memory that might be a really positive experience for them um i also just think any 
little win is a big breakthrough for eating disorders. Um, we know how rigid they are, how stagnant they can be. So just even a patient putting a skill into practice and being able to sort of self-regulate or when a patient's able just to get a good night's sleep in the hospital, um, one of the nights is a really, a really big breakthrough. Um, it may seem small and trivial, but to them it is such a huge win. Yeah, definitely. To, for people to even have that connection, that positive connection to food in the past, that's such, you know, an important experience and thing to have for people who have experienced an eating disorder or disordered eating, just to have a positive experience and begin to create those moments again. Yeah, it is worth more than anything I think in these sort of hospital settings um one of the reasons as to why we do have that social meal because these are things that you can sort of push back against the eating disorder by saying hey in the future you're able to go out with your family or your children and have these meals um you know if your kids want to stop for ice cream on the way home from school you can actually sit down and have one with them um it's sometimes not about the food itself but the actual experience that is around that food um and it is so valuable in that fight against the eating disorder yes definitely so then what are some i guess of the therapies or evidence-based treatments that are most effective in treatment yeah so earlier i did mention kind of cbte and that has been shown in the research to be kind of the most effective evidence-based treatment for eating disorders um but the beauty i think lies in the flexibility that a clinician can have in these settings that each day will bring so many new challenges and obstacles for any patient to face and being able to adapt the therapy and the style to what is going to work on the day is the most value, valuable thing that you can do for the patients. Um, some weeks I'm able to stick kind of directly to a CBTE, DBT kind of based approach. Um, but other weeks it may just be a little bit of that and a bit of group cohesiveness work, such as like just playing a game or getting outside for some fresh air, doing something creative, um, maybe even a feedback group um, if things haven't been working too well within the group dynamic about how do we kind of settle some of these issues. Um, yeah, as I said, I'm really lucky to be holding that flexibility and the kind of change where I can just check in with a patient, see what they need that day, and then be able to move through that. Um, that has been the most effective thing that I've seen instead of sticking rigidly to a program when maybe they're just not feeling it. It's been a tough day. Something's happened and um, not acknowledging that I think can be a lot trickier than just sort of saying, Hey, today is tough. What are we, what are we going to do? How are we going to change this? Yes. I definitely love that being flexible with therapy or some days just no therapy. It is whatever is based on the situation. What's going to be the most helpful. I think that's so important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And especially being in a hospital setting 24-7 um, and doing, you know, two to three therapy sessions every day, it's nice to be able to just chill out and sit outside and get some fresh air sometimes. Yeah, definitely. Have some fun, have some play, some have some connection, which is so important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So then how do you see people, I guess, experience the inpatient or outpatient treatment setting? I think it varies. Um, sometimes it is sort of a big circuit breaker after years of treatment that just hasn't stuck. Um, 
sometimes it can also be a bit of an unpleasant experience that they are able to recognize that maybe they're just not ready for yet. Um, I think it comes down to the motivation that often if I see patients come in and they seem to be almost fed up with the eating disorder, they're sick of it, they don't want it anymore, that's when I see sort of the inpatient program being a really big positive because they're like, I just want this gone, I need to work through it. Um, Overall, the day program seems to be a pretty positive experience. Um, It only runs four days a week for sort of half days. So the patients do have a lot of time with their family and their other commitments and their hobbies. And I think that that is less restricting than the inpatient program itself. Um, It varies person to person. Some people love it. Some people absolutely despise it and probably will not come back. But it just, yeah, I think does come down to that motivation. Yeah, definitely, actually, and where people are at. But it is good to see in the outpatient setting, I guess, people can step back from the social dynamic of it and then come back maybe after processing things um, in a different way. Yeah, very much so. Mm. But then some people need the inpatient as well. It's just really dependent. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's the tricky thing when maybe they had their sights set on the day program but um, kind of recognised that that inpatient setting was a little bit more appropriate for them at the time. Um, we try and make it as comfortable as we possibly can in a hospital setting. As we all know, hospital settings are not always that comfortable, um, but we have an incredible team around me and also all of our nurses are just like one big family there, so I think that really helps. Oh, that's nice. It's nice to have that team type of environment. Yeah, definitely. So then how do you see people experience not being able, I guess, to attend life commitments in the inpatient setting when they do need to recover? Yeah, I think that is one of the hardest things to navigate during hospitalisation, aside from the eating disorder itself. Um Patients often speak about feeling almost left behind, um, specifically if they have loved ones that are like going on holidays or attending fun life events such as graduations, birthdays, weddings. Um, A lot of patients still try and balance sort of some online work or online study while being in hospital. So um, I've seen this be incredibly successful. I've seen patients... um, kind of defend their thesis for their PhD and successfully pass during treatment. I've seen patients pass master's degrees while in hospital, um, but I've also seen it kind of disrupt the treatment due to the level of time and stress that those sort of commitments do hold. Um, I think the most important thing that we remind patients when they do start to feel a little bit left behind or a little bit down due to missing out on these life commitments is that the hospitalization is only temporary. It's only going to last, you know, a certain number of weeks. And then without it, it may not actually be possible to start attending these life events if you weren't getting the treatment that you need right now. Um, I think patients that do come in that may have children, that is also another big one is missing first days of schools or school plays or whatever it might be. Um, And again, it's just pushing that narrative that, It is tough for the moment, but getting this treatment now means that you're not going to miss out on anything in the future. Yes, definitely. And it's important for people to also hear it who do go 
into hospital from being medically unwell because there are um, those types of patients as well where they really are medically unwell and, you know, it is kind of a life-saving treatment. Yeah, yeah, and it is it is the harsh reality of things that um, that maybe if they weren't getting that treatment in hospital that their life may not actually be continuing um, past a certain point. I do feel that most of the patients um, are able to kind of get their head around that narrative and understand it once that refeeding process has sort of started. Um, But usually those first few weeks can be quite tough. Yes, they definitely would be. So then how do you see the experience, I guess, of hospitalisation impact people from your perspective? I think it's quite interesting. Some people find it overwhelmingly supportive um, and reflecting that may it may be one of the first times in a long time that they felt really safe or really cared for, um, which can make it easier if they sort of lapse or relapse um, after discharge to come back before things start to get too far downhill. Um, other times, as I mentioned, that may not enjoy the hospital stay too much, um, which can be a positive thing. It can be that motivator that, like, I never want to go back there, therefore I'm going to continue on this recovery journey. Um, but also if they do in the future need that higher level of support, they can be a little bit apprehensive to re-engage or, or come back. Um, I think, yeah, I do see a lot of friends getting made in the cohorts that come through. I see a huge amount of hobbies being taken up and tried out um, and also a lot of people kind of sitting with the discomfort of like I actually have a lot of time on my hands now and I don't know what to do with it. So um, I think it's, yeah, definitely different for every patient that I have. Yes, definitely. You would learn a lot from that experience in whatever it is. Yeah. So then would you be able to, I guess, talk a little bit about the stages in treatment? Yeah, so for the inpatient program, um, which is our refeeding program, it has kind of specific stages built into it to help patients reach their safe minimum weight um, in a quick but regulated sort of manner. Um, That is mainly set by our medical team, which is um, our psychiatrists alongside our nurses and dietitians. Um, But I guess the therapy side of things, um, it looks a little different patient to patient. So the main stages that I work through, I speak quite a lot about that distraction versus the reflection. Um, At the beginning of their admissions, patients are usually quite malnourished, um, therefore unable to kind of actively engage in any meaningful therapy. So we spend a lot of time working on what what works to distract them, what helps. Um, Some patients use sort of physical distractions such as ice pack, heat pack, breathing exercises. Others will use a lot more of those activity-based kind of distractions such as colouring, reading, playing games with other patients. Um, Then once they've got that good repertoire of distraction activities um, we start to reduce the amount of time we distract after a trigger or a meal um, and spend a little bit more time reflecting about the experience which can include include things like you know thought challenging figuring out where the eating disorder started to lead them off the path um, of recovery so I guess they're the stages that I sort of look at 
in between all of that, we work in a lot of those like admission plans at the beginning, like what are the goals for therapy that you want to leave with? The discharge planning about um, making sure they have some pretty hefty plans around distress tolerance, around early warning signs, around that what I like to call is like the fire drill plan that hopefully we won't need it, but it's there if we do. So if things start to slip up, who do we call? What do we tell them? How do we get back to the place that we need to be? Um, so the stages kind of work differently on the medical and the psychological side of things. Um, but compared to the medical side of things, which is a very regimented stock standard style, um, my side of things is a lot more flexible patient to patient. Yes, and it's important to have that in the in the multidisciplinary team. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So is there anything that people, I guess, who haven't experienced any inpatient or outpatient eating disorder treatment should know about it? Yeah, I think the one thing that shocks patients the most is how boundaried it is um how it can feel like there is a significant amount of rules um which are in place to keep people safe um we understand that sort of eating disorder urges can be so significantly strong sometimes that we put these boundaries in place um to be able to stop any action happening from those urges um, and it gives the patients the time and the space to be able to acknowledge that the urge is there and try something different um, and to know that things are going to be okay if they don't engage in any of those urges. Um, it's important to know that there is a lot of downtime. I think that is another big thing even though there is, you know, three meals, three snacks and almost three groups of therapy per day. Um, there is a lot of downtime within that. Um, so it's a really good place to kind of rediscover hobbies if the eating disorder has kind of taken that part of your life away. If you haven't been engaging in things that you like to do just because you like to do them, it's a place to kind of try that again. Um, I could not count the amount of people that I have seen learn crochet or get back into reading um, just because they finally had the space to be able to indulge themselves in it and almost the permission to do so as well. Yeah, that's really interesting that people pick up new hobbies or interests or really find new aspects of themselves. Yeah, and I think it's such an important thing as well that when they do leave hospital, um, if they are really set on that recovery, we have taken something away that takes up a significant amount of their time. So it's about looking at what are we going to replace that with. Um, and crochet seems to be, yeah, a really big one. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, yeah, just finding the things about yourself and your interests and really giving yourself that space and that time to do that. Yeah, yeah, which can be uncomfortable. I think I've definitely seen a lot of distress from people who maybe have had the eating disorder for so long that they don't really know who they are without it or in reflection kind of recognise that they haven't actually enjoyed a hobby or anything for multiple years. Um, so being able to kind of re-engage with that fun side of their personality and that enjoyment and that pleasure is an uncomfortable journey. Definitely, because eating disorders are very consuming of your whole life. So then 
you know, to find other areas about yourself, you might surprise yourself with what ends up kind of replacing those areas. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So then I guess, do you have any tools that you think people who haven't experienced inpatient or outpatient treatment can use to help within their own recovery? As I've said before, self-compassion. I will push that as much as I can to anybody, not just somebody experiencing an eating disorder. I think it's such a helpful tool to have. Um, It's okay to struggle and it's completely okay to need that extra support when you are struggling. Um, But it's also important not to be unkind to yourself due to needing the extra support. Um, Everyone is worthy of love and support and as much as the eating disorder will tell the people that are experiencing it that they are not um it doesn't mean it's true um self-compassion is important especially if there has been a bit of a lapse or a relapse in that recovery journey um just to kind of push the idea that a slip-up isn't a failure and just because something has gone a little bit astray doesn't mean you need to throw a whole day or a whole week or a whole month out the window um It does sound really cliche and the patients always laugh at me when I tell them this, but it's the idea of when you are climbing a mountain and it's tricky is don't forget to stop and look at all of the mountains that you've climbed already to get to that point. Um, Just getting into an eating disorder program in a hospital setting takes a lot of work. You know, there's a lot of referrals that need to go through. There's a lot of appointments you need to attend. So even just getting in there to begin with is a whole mountain in itself. Um, And I think patients do forget that when things are tricky, that they're just failing, they're struggling, and that's the end of it. It's not actually that they've climbed like 20 peaks already. Um, So I think that self-compassion is the most important tool that you can have um, in eating disorder treatment. Yeah, definitely. And I guess it's hard sometimes with the self-compassion because of those like automatic thoughts or compulsions. Um, But what I like as well, I've heard is like writing down, I guess, some self-compassionate things just to get it on paper, like kind of like that gratitude when I guess, yeah, you don't even realize that you haven't been self-compassionate until someone kind of reflects it back to you because it can be so hard with our minds and our thoughts to just, yeah. It almost becomes a default, doesn't it? Um, Yeah, so we spend a lot of time, a lot of self-compassion journaling, a lot of self-care planning. Um, I've had patients put up entire murals of positive thoughts and positive affirmations across their mirror in the bathrooms. Um, Whatever works, works. Um, So there's no kind of right or wrong way to do self-compassion, and that's what I like about it. It is completely personal. It doesn't make any professional the expert on what's going to work for you it's just about finding the right fit yes definitely and I love the practice element of it that you can do different types of self-compassion yeah 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 definitely I think it makes it a lot easier that you know if you get home and you're feeling really stressed and really overwhelmed and you realize that the house is a little bit of a mess is the self-compassion kind of recognizing you've had a really big day and you don't need to push yourself to clean or is the self-compassion just doing a quick clean up so you can feel more comfortable in your space? It will be completely different for every person. Yeah, definitely. So I guess what are the most challenging and the most rewarding parts of working in your role? Yeah, um, I think this one always takes me by surprise when I reflect on it because I think 
you think you know the answer to it, but when you actually sit down and, and kind of mull it over, it does show up some different things each time. Um, I think probably the most challenging part of my role is when I do see patients distressed about having to stay in a hospital setting. Um, even though we are a voluntary program, we do have many patients come in that are, have maybe been referred by a community team and it's been recommended as the best course of treatment going forward. Um, so we do see them kind of coming in to people please the people around them um, to make sure that mum knows they're getting support kind of ways. So I think that is the trickiest thing, that even though I know that the treatment is what is needed for them, it's hard to see people grappling with the idea that recovery is just too hard. Um, it is. It is a really tricky thing being in a hospital setting, being away from family and friends, um, and having to really tackle this eating disorder head on day in, day out. Um, I do spend a lot of time in my groups talking about that recovery burnout and how we can manage that in some of those long hospital stays or those long treatment courses. Yeah, so I think that is that is tough. Um, but I also do think the most rewarding part is when I can see patients put in place skills that we have discussed in group or we've practiced in group um, whether that's just as simple as like a small distress tolerance skill that they'd never heard of before, some thought challenging, maybe it's tackling a fear food. Um, so when they're able to kind of pick the right moment to put it in place and then it actually works, the relief that I see from people when they're finally able to manage a tricky situation um, with tools from their own toolkit has been so rewarding and so valuable. Um, I've had... On the opposite side of that, I've had patients reflect to me that um, I am able to set boundaries with them in a really kind and compassionate way, which was so special to me to hear um, because I think one of my main goals in my work is to create a safe, caring space that also helps patients kind of fight back against these eating disorder cognitions um, and doing so needs to have quite a lot of boundaries and quite a lot of rules. Um, so to have patients reflect that I've been able to do that in a really kind way meant a lot because, as we all know, setting boundaries and holding that space can be really uncomfortable sometimes. Yes, definitely. But I love that you've been able to do it with that compassionate care because I think that is one of the most important things, I think, in treatment to have a treatment team that is compassionate and caring and supportive. I think in a hospital setting, sometimes that can be quite challenging. Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, patients do reflect that it does feel like school again and they're getting watched and told off at every moment. Um, but we try our best to sort of explain why these boundaries are being, say, uh, being set for them and what are we actually doing with these boundaries to help fight back against the eating disorder. Um, we don't just like setting the rules because we like setting rules. Um, I don't think anybody actually likes to do that. Um, so for patients to recognise that these are there for a reason is so important. Yes, definitely. So interesting to see that insight, especially from like a voluntary type inpatient and outpatient program yeah yeah definitely I think it's um it's rare to have a program like this as we are a private hospital um it is not super accessible from everybody um where I used to work was a 
NGO, which was free to everybody. Um, I worked with adolescents. So kind of seeing the opposite side of that has been interesting. But I guess it's a work around like the funding and like the bed spaces in private. Yeah, so um, not entirely sure. I kind of distanced myself from that side of things. Um, but yeah. most of our most of our patients will be covered under their private health insurance. Um, so I think it's kind of like one of the top tier covers will cover their entire stay as long as they need. Um, but patients do have the option to kind of self-fund and come in, which is something that we do we don't advocate against, but we do sort of let them know that um, if we can get that private health insurance to cover, that's going to be the most beneficial thing. Um, we have a maximum of 10 beds in our inpatient facility, which um, beginning of the year were kind of consistently full. And then sort of the last couple of months have teetered off a bit to a, between about four and six patients at a time, um, which is surprising because obviously we know there is such a high need for that care. Um, and a lot of the patients do have that private health insurance, whether it's under their parents' private health or, or themselves. Um, and our day program usually houses between about six and eight patients. So I think we're capped at about 10, but the max that I've seen is eight. Yeah, because I feel like there'll be people wanting to fly over there. <laughs> yeah, and we often have, we try our best to discharge all of our patients into our day program is like that step down. But um, obviously demographically, you know, sometimes they live right down south or we've had patients come over from over east that it's just not able to be done. Um, but often we'll see a trend that if we do have a lot of patients from interstate or elsewhere, that our day program numbers drop because we're not kind of discharging directly. Mm. And if people do kind of fly over from interstate, do their families come and stay? Is it like a long, how long are they there for? Mm, usually our admissions are between kind of four to ten-ish weeks. Um, I have seen patients stay upwards of close to three months sometimes, um, which is really, tr really tricky. The only patients that I've seen come from out of state is when they've actually had family here to begin with. So maybe they've grown up in Perth, maybe they've had um, relatives over here that they come and um, kind of initially stay with before they come into hospital. Um, but otherwise, if it is from interstate, it is usually we discharge them. They maybe stay with family or friends and then just get on a flight home that afternoon. Wow, it seems like you have so much experience while still studying full-time. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's one of those, I'm sure you understand, it's one of those industries that, like, once you get into it, you just you just stay in it. Um, you see how much of a need there is for that support and that care, and you're like, I can't, I can't get out of this now. This is where I'm at. Um, and I've got, um, my, at, the, at the moment, our program has myself and a mental health OT that, um, so I work solely on the inpatient by myself, but our day program shared between me and the mental health OT. Um, so that's a really nice dynamic as well, um, that we work really similarly, but I have kind of the psych background of things and she has that um, OT background, which I think is a really, really good balance. Yeah, that's really special. How, I guess, do you see the OT aspect? So is it like the functionality, seeing how, is that her background or has she gone more into mental health? 
Definitely mental health. Um, heard her, her describe herself as like a pseudo psych sometimes because she feels like she's lost some of those OT roots. But I also think I'm a little bit more OT-ish than I am more of a psych. So it's this nice blend of kind of the theory and the evidence-based background, but that like just that functional recovery. Like where are we going to be able to go forward? Like I don't want you to be leaving here at 100% because it's not possible. So can we just get you to like 60, 80% of your functioning and then we can work on the rest? Um, I also think having the OT background is really helpful when we do have patients with ARFID, um, being able to do sensory profiles, figuring out um, what's going to be the best in regards to like going home, um, especially if they do have any um, other comorbidities such as like ADHD or autism having that functional aspect of like, do actually they just get way too engrossed in a task and forget to eat over lunch? How can we implement something there? So that's super handy to have. Yeah. And you definitely get the cognitive element as well. If you are undernourished, you'd probably see that a bit and you'd like that progress. Yeah, that's a big thing. I think sometimes, um, especially if I do have almost an entire cohort that was in with like that one or two weeks, um that I do I describe myself as a bit of a dancing monkey sometimes that I'm like okay you guys are not wanting a bar of me I'll just continue on with this therapy and hopefully something goes in um I try my best any handouts I give any worksheets to be like really super simplistic easy to follow um nothing clinical nothing like full of psychological jargon um so that is tricky is being able to manage patients in the group when some of them have been there for like 13 14 weeks and some of them are there for their first week quite malnourished yeah definitely and how much they can process from that in that moment yeah 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 so I do have a bit of a rotation of the topics that I do so things like distress tolerance plans early warning signs admission goals I'll do like a couple of times within those sort of months just so they are getting that repetition of okay when I wrote that it probably wasn't super accurate but now I'm like fully nourished I can get through this yeah and that repetition is important sometimes you need to hear something so many times for it kind of to click oh yeah for sure the amount of times I come up against you know therapy skills dbt skills I'm like I have no idea what this acronym stands for even though I've done it so many times so I can imagine it's tricky for the patients too. Definitely. It's like a teacher or your parents like telling you and reminding you of things and then you just, yeah, it goes yeah. out and then it comes back and you've kind of got to, yeah, keep reminding yourself, even when you've completely fascinated with something and then it just goes. Yeah, yeah. And they've got so much else going on in the hospital setting alongside that. So, yeah, I don't blame them at all if they forget anything that we're doing in group as long as they're willing to engage in trying their best. Yeah, definitely. It's even like learning some something. You need to learn it and practice it for it to kind of yeah. set in that new habit. Yes. Yeah, I think the patients get sick of me sort of giving them a skill. Um, I don't work over the weekends. So saying like, you're going to practice it this weekend and come Monday I'm coming in and we're going to touch base about what happened. And then come Monday and either they haven't done anything or I've forgotten to ask. So it is um, yeah, definitely a shared experience. <laughs> Yes, very a human experience though. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Well, I wanted to say thank you so much, Tess, for this episode. It has been incredible. Thank you so much, Jesse. I really appreciate you inviting me in. Mm-hmm.
Well, that's the end of today's episode. Please subscribe, leave us a comment or a review. If you would also like to learn more about Body Matters services, you can check out our website at bodymatters.com.au. Thanks for listening.